reading from the prophet Isaiah, beginning with the 42nd chapter, the 18th verse. Hear, you deaf, and look, you blind, that you may see. Who is blind but my servant? Or deaf is my messenger whom I send? Who is blind is my dedicated one? Or blind is the servant of the Lord? He sees many things, but does not observe them. His ears are open, but he does not hear. The Lord was pleased for his righteousness' sake to magnify his law and make it glorious. But this is a people plundered and looted. They are all of them trapped in holes and hidden in prisons. They have become plunder with none to rescue, spoil with none to say, restore. Who among you will give ear to this, will attend and listen for the time to come? Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, in whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he poured on him the heat of his anger and the might of battle. It set him on fire all around, but he did not understand. It burned him up, but he did not take it to heart. But now, thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, He who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes, in honor, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar, and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together, and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right, and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen. You may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I. I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed, when there is no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and I am God. The Word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. A reading from the Gospel according to St. Luke, the 24th chapter beginning with the 13th verse. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, 
about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word, before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it was just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him and vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I speak to you in the name of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. With our gospel passage this morning, we move over to Luke and return to the day of Jesus' resurrection in the afternoon. And Luke tells us that two followers of Jesus former followers of Jesus, are traveling from Jerusalem to Emmaus. We're told the name of one of them is Cleopas. So we know that these two had not been part of Jesus' eleven remaining closest disciples. And this takes place before Jesus will appear to the eleven in a locked room later that evening, as we've read in previous weeks. In fact, at this point, Luke has just finished describing what occurred that morning. Luke's account reported there were multiple women who went to the tomb with Mary Magdalene. 
And when they tell the 11 remaining disciples they found the tomb empty, most of the disciples believe it's straight nonsense, while Peter is reported as racing to the empty tomb, but remains confused himself. So now Luke moves to later that same day in the afternoon when two of Jesus' followers are traveling away from Jerusalem. And Jesus draws near and begins walking. However, Cleopas and his companion do not recognize him. As Luke reports in verse 16, somewhat mysteriously, that their eyes were kept from recognizing him. That being said, it wasn't uncommon in those days for Jewish travelers who were going a long distance to join up to a small company of other travelers and to converse with them as they walked. And that's what Jesus does here. Well, Cleopas and his companion are clearly talking about something of great significance when Jesus comes upon them. So feigning ignorance, Jesus asks them what they're talking about. And this causes them to suddenly stop stand still, because they're amazed that this fellow traveler seems not to have heard what transpired in Jerusalem just days before. With a hint of sadness, Cleopas asks, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? But Jesus continues to play dumb. So Cleopas proceeds to explain how during the Passover, Jesus of Nazareth a mighty prophet of God, was delivered up to the Romans by their own chief priests and put to death by crucifixion. In verse 21 he says, We had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel, that is, the promised Messiah. Now, Cleopas explains, it's been three days and Jesus' tomb had been reported empty by some women that morning. But clearly these two, Cleopas and his companion, are highly skeptical of the women's report what the angels have told them, Jesus is risen. Sadly, scholar Craig Keener reports that many men in the first century Israel in those days, many men tended to consider the witness of women to be nearly worthless because they regard women as unstable and undependable. So instead, these two remain, like most of the eleven at that point, devastated and despairing that Jesus had been crucified. As they said in verse 21, we had hoped he was the one to redeem us. Not anymore. So now they've decided to head out of town to Emmaus. Over the years, many commentators have suggested that these two just couldn't bear to remain in Jerusalem after all that had just transpired. Many have viewed their fleeing to Emmaus as a sort of metaphor for ways we often seek out means of escaping reality. And reality just seems too difficult to bear. But Jesus, still not revealing his identity, scolds these two for not believing the and instead suggests that the prophets in Scripture had taught that it would be necessary for the Christ to suffer in the way Jesus had before entering into his glory. 
And then Jesus begins to explain to them the way that the Scriptures from Moses to the prophets, so our Old Testament, the way it had prefigured and predicted everything Jesus had done and gone through. And especially that he would have to suffer and die, but also that death would not It is true that the Old Testament is littered with elements that anticipate Jesus. Some would say in almost every story of prophecy, there's a hint of the one who's to come. So we don't know which Old Testament passages Jesus chose to interpret for these two during their seven-mile journey. But this morning, I want to consider the Old Testament passage appointed for us today in this life. The beginning of Isaiah 43 is what was appointed for us, but I included some of the verses leading up to it from the end of chapter 42 in order to give some context. If you want to turn there. The immediate purpose of this prophecy in Isaiah is to encourage the people of Israel, also referred to in the passage of Jacob who some five centuries before Christ will find themselves exiled in Babylon, away from their homeland for a period of 70 years. And in the verses preceding chapter 43, we can see God revealing why he would allow Israel to be exiled from the land he had promised them. Beginning at 42.18, the Lord assesses Israel to be spiritually deaf and blind because they had been disregarding both the Lord and his law. So he goes on then to explain why it was he, the Lord, who would allow them to be defeated and taken into exile, saying in verse 24, Who gave up Jacob to the looter and Israel to the plunderers? Was it not the Lord against whom we have sinned, and whose ways they would not walk, and whose law they would not obey? So he, God, poured on him, Israel, the heat of his anger in the might of battle. Yet even these extreme consequences for Israel's faithfulness, of losing everything they held dear when they were sent into exile, even this would not seem to get Israel's attention or lead them to the place of repentance. In verse 25, the prophet continues saying, It that is, the heat of the Lord's anger, set Israel on fire all around. But he, Israel, did not understand. It burned him up. He did not take it to heart. So based upon the end of chapter 42, since even the exile in Babylon wouldn't wake Israel from their spiritual stupor or cause them to seek healing for their spiritual blindness, At this point, one might just expect God to either bring down the hammer even more or to give up on Israel, go find another people. And yet look at how chapter 43 opens. The prophet instead saying, But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, He who formed you, Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned. And the flame shall not consume you. 
So even though God allows his people to endure the consequences of being unfaithful to him, his promise here is that he will remain with them throughout for the simple reason that he had made a covenant. When God speaks in verse 1 of creating Jacob, he's not speaking of the creation in Genesis 1, but of when he chose them as his people, first through his covenant with Abram. And when he speaks of forming Israel and having redeemed them, he's talking about when he rescued them from slavery in Egypt and then established them to be his servant and his witness to the world of his goodness through the Ten Commandments, what we now call the Old Covenant. So when God says in verse 2, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. These two lines refer to God's parting of the waters at the Red Sea as Israel fled Egypt. And then 40 years later, at the Jordan River, when God parted the waters to allow Israel to cross the promised land. But the second part of this verse, verse where God says, when you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame you shall not consume, this would speak to them in their immediate situation. Not about the past, but in their immediate situation of being exiled in Babylon. Remember, we saw back in 42.25 that, that God described it as a fire. So God's promising Israel that as his chosen people, he will remain with them not only through tribulation that comes from just living in this world and even living under persecution, but that he will even remain with them when their affliction is a consequence of their own faithlessness. Even then, he will not forsake them. Such are the promises those who entered into covenant living And yet, as good as this news was for Israel during exile, this is also good news for all of us. See, the church has long understood God's covenant with Israel to anticipate the new covenant God has established with anyone who will enter into relationship with him in Christ. Rather than being rescued from literal slavery in Egypt, we have been rescued from spiritual slavery, the sin, the death of Christ, passing not through the Red Sea, but through the waters of baptism. And like Israel, the Lord intends to form us as a people who serve and witness to his goodness through a relationship of abiding in Him, where He transforms our hearts and gives us power by the Holy Spirit to love God and our neighbor as Christ Christ does. In verse 3, He explains to Israel, For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. I give Egypt as your ransom. This is probably better translated as, I gave Egypt as a ransom. And the Cush and Seba line after that is just poetic repetition, as these are regions in or near Egypt. But then God continues, verse 4, Because you are precious in my eyes, and honor, and I love you, I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. Men given in exchange for Israel are not 
only the Egyptians who drowned in the Red Sea after Israel crossed over, but every firstborn son of Egypt who was given over to death in order to set free God's people. But for us, the parallel here is again Jesus. As God gave up His only begotten Son to death for you and me, because we are precious in His eyes, honor he loves us. So this is how God's promises to Israel and his first covenant people here in chapter 43 become also promises to us, his new covenant people through Christ. And this is why we were able to proclaim God's startlingly good, startlingly good news to Israel here. We were able to proclaim this good news as a promise to us when we sang earlier this morning, right? We sang, Do not be afraid. I am with you. I have called you each my name. I love you and you are mine. The word of God right here. Just like God is promising to Israel that he'll remain faithful even when they are faithless. So St. Paul writes in 2 Timothy, astonishingly, really, that that even if we are faithless, God remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. He cannot deny the covenant he has adduced. I want to suggest to you that this promise is evident in today's passage from Luke. About Cleopas and his companion on the Emmaus Road. These two had been followers of Jesus. And yet they had been deaf to what? To Jesus' many teachings about his death and resurrection in the previous year. And now they are somewhat literally showing themselves to be blind, right? On the road, as they're incapable of recognizing the risen Lord. They are both deaf and blind. And yet despite their lack of faith and understanding, Jesus loves them. He does not give up on them, but he goes, rather, he goes after them. He chases after them, you might say. This is what we see God promising to do for Israel back in Isaiah 43. God continues in verse 5 saying, I will bring your offspring from the east and from the west. I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth. This is what we see Jesus doing. We see him doing just this in Luke 24 as he begins to gather a new covenant people unto himself by going after these two in their deafness and blindness. In fact, Jesus may even be fulfilling verse 6's mention of daughters there in Isaiah. As there's no reason to rule out that Cleopas' companion was a woman. Sure, most of us imagine it being two men, but we're never told. Then in verse 7 of Isaiah, God refers to his covenant people as everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. This last verse seems to anticipate how St. Paul will describe God's new covenant people in Romans when he writes, quoting from the prophet Joel, Paul writes, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. Now, as if God remaining faithful to this extent, 
actively seeking out his covenant people, even when we are faithful. As if on its own that didn't seem too good to be true. The remainder of our Isaiah passage provides an even greater revelation of God's love that may be beyond what we conceived of. At least it was new to me. Beginning in verse 8, we find the prophet shift to describing a sort of courtroom scene. This was actually a fairly common motif used by the prophets. The scene begins with the blind and deaf Israelites being assembled together in verse 8 with all the nations of the world in verse 9. But it's the Lord and those gods of the other nations who are on trial. These people gathered are meant to be witnesses to answer the question of whose God has shown himself to be great, to be both sovereign over the world, over creation, and faithful. Well, based on what God has already mentioned earlier in the chapter, we know that the answer is the Lord, the God of Israel. For no other nation's God had done anything like the acts he did in ransoming his people from Egypt not to mention using an empire like Babylon for his purposes. And yet in this courtroom scenario, the Lord has what seems to be a bit of a problem. That is because his witnesses, the people of Israel, are deaf and blind. Just imagine yourself being a litigant in a trial where you're depending on witnesses who have neither the capability to see or hear. You're relying on their testimony to vindicate you. Here again, we have a parallel with Luke 21. Because remember, at that point on Easter Sunday, it isn't just Cleopas and his companions, but none of Jesus' 11 remaining disciples believe he is risen. They have all shown themselves to be thus far deaf and blind. And yet these are whom he has chosen and will soon commission to be witnesses to his resurrection in the kingdom of life. Despite how slow they are, spiritual discernment. Of course, don't say that to condemn them. Why on earth? God choose witnesses who are deaf and blind to be witnesses of his goodness. Back in Isaiah 43, he reveals it. Verse 10, he explains to You are my witnesses, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that that before me no God was formed, nor will there be one after me. I, even I, am the Lord, and apart from me, there is no Did you catch it? You are my witnesses, declares the Lord, so that you may know and believe. See, the truth is that God doesn't really need need anything. 
what's even more shocking here is that God's primary purpose for calling Israel to witness is not for the sake of those other nations, at least not primarily. Certainly cares about those other people. But first and foremost, God calls Israel to be his witnesses for Israel's own sake, to cure their own blindness, because he loves them and he wants more of them. This provides a whole different angle for us to think about the reasons God has called us to be his witnesses under the new covenant. We all know, or hopefully not, I'm telling you, 40 days after his resurrection, before he ascends, Jesus would commission his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that he's commanded. And I know, I know a lot of us can feel overwhelmed by the Lord obliging us in this way to be witnesses. We may feel completely inadequate to make a disciple out of anyone or have never felt we've been successful. What if we came to see that the Lord has called us to be witnesses? First of all, because of his love our own sakes. What if the hidden motive in God calling us to be witnesses for others and in giving us a burden for others is to continue propelling us forward on our own journey of throwing off the sin that so easily entangles us? Because every time we turn back to sin, we're turning away from Him. We may be forgiven, but we're disconnected. This Isaiah passage parallels life in the New Covenant, and it, it indicates that like Israel, God calls each one of us to the vocation of being his witness, despite our inadequacy. First of all, because of what take, taking that vocation seriously does for us. Because it draws us closer. And he is jealous to have not just us being covenant with him, but to have more and more of our Perhaps you don't feel like you've been instrumental in a whole lot of people becoming disciples of Jesus. But I wonder, has just your awareness that God has chosen you as his witness, has just knowledge of that ever kept you from doing something stupid? From disconnecting from God to indulge some temptation to sin? I'll be honest this morning, there are certainly occasions This has been the case for me. I thought, I don't want to leave such and such, but I thought, what does that do to my witness? So, what if we began to see even God's call to live as His witnesses is yet another mark of His love? That Christ seeks for us to be his witnesses, first and foremost, to cure our own spiritual blindness. As God says over in Isaiah, verse 10, You are my witnesses and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And in that verse 11, 
to know that I, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. There's nothing for you in Emmaus. So don't bother fleeing to it when trouble strikes. Instead, turn back and believe. Indeed, this seems to be Jesus' priority in going after Cleopas and his companion on the road. He clearly wants to and later will use them as witnesses, of course. But first of all, his priority is going after them for their own sake, like the lost sheep, particularly if going to Emmaus is a metaphor for escapism into unbelief. But notice how he does it. Instead of shocking them by revealing his risen self to them that, of course, they couldn't say no to, before he does that, Jesus discreetly presents them with the gospel from the scriptures. And then he tests to see if they'll choose the truth and beauty of that over that falsity of escapism. Verse 28, he acts as if he's going to keep walking. That's the test. They say, stay with us. Whatever you're talking about, we, we want to know more. And so he does, and then they recognize him in the breaking of the bread. And they immediately leave Emmaus and return back to Jerusalem and into his fold. Even though we continue in so many ways to be spiritually deaf, because God has called us, He continues loving us, continues coming to us. And He has given to each one of us the vocation of being His witnesses at all times. Even when we're not meaning to, in every interaction with others, in everything that we do, in everything that we post on social media, we are bearing some sort of witness. And he wants us to take that seriously, not because he needs it, but because we need it. So this morning, Jesus comes to us on the road we're traveling and shows us the beauty of his calling to be witnesses for him. Are we willing to embrace that calling? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit.